Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. As a church family, we are in our final two weeks in a verse-by-verse journey through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And as Peter concludes this short letter, he is sharing with the believers he's writing to about their new life in Christ and that this new life brings about a new perspective. He tells them that they've been born again and their eyes have been opened to the spiritual world that exists. And as he concludes this book, starting in chapter 4, he talks to them about spiritual living. And he moves from there to talk to them about spiritual suffering and how they should have a new perspective on suffering because they are believers. And then he moves on to talk to them about spiritual leadership and what the church should look like. And then he concludes with a pretty heavy topic. And we're choosing to conclude this book in a three-part series that we've entitled Spiritual Warfare. Now this morning, even as I say that, I recognize that that is a very weighty, heavy phrase. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear a phrase like spiritual warfare. Maybe what pops into your mind is something that's just in your imagination about what that means. Maybe what comes to your mind is something you've seen in our culture. Maybe what comes to your mind is an image that you saw on the internet. That being the case, last week when we started this series, we established a biblical framework for spiritual warfare. And we did that by sharing three words. Maybe you were here last week, maybe you weren't. But just so we're all on the same page this morning as we start and begin looking at the text, I want to remind us of this biblical framework in three words. Here's the first word. Reality. Spiritual warfare is a reality. There is an unseen world. And the unseen spiritual world is just as real as the visible physical world that we live in. There is a spiritual world that is very, very real. I read this statement last week, but it begs repeating by Chip Ingram. He said, the Bible doesn't inform us of this invisible world in passing references or isolated verses here and there. The witness is resounding and pervasive. If the spiritual world of angels and demons is not reality, neither is the Bible. The context of the invisible world in Scripture is just that emphatic. 
it can't be rationalized out of the word. So that's the first word in this biblical framework that serves as a foundation for us as we think about spiritual warfare. Reality. Here's the second word in our framework. Urgency. Not only is there an unseen world, but we are involved in an unseen war that is taking place in the unseen world. You see, what is taking place in this unseen spiritual world is a war between two enemies. And in this unseen spiritual world, light and dark are represented, good and evil, life and death. It is a war that is urgent in this spiritual world. Reality, urgency, here's the third and final word in this biblical framework for spiritual warfare. Victory. There is a spiritual battle that rages every day in the unseen world. But the ultimate victory has already been won by King Jesus. And it is critical for us as believers that we view all spiritual warfare through the filter that we ultimately win. We looked at this life application last week, and I've just been living with it all week, and it's been refreshing for me. Here it is. As followers of Jesus, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. I want us to read that this morning on three. One, two, three. As followers of Jesus, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Amen? The Bible says in the book of 1 John, Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we must view all spiritual warfare from that reality. We win. So with that framework in mind, would you take your Bible and look with me at the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. And I want to read for us verses 6 through 11. I want to reach back. And read the two verses we looked at last week. And then continue in our primary text of verses 8 through 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible or a copy of God's Word, we're going to put this on the screen. We would love for you to read along with us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, Because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's very interesting as you read these two passages together. 
as we looked at verses 6 and 7 last week about our God. And then Peter transitions in verses 8 through 11 to talk about our enemy and the resistance of our enemy. Right in the middle, he gives two very, very important commands. He gives two warnings, if you will. And here's why I think these warnings are so important. Because the lies that our world believes today are the same lies that the world believed then. And here is a big one. The lie that the enemy is not real. And the lie that the enemy is not powerful. The Barna group did some research. And here was the result. Nearly 6 out of 10 Christians. People who profess to follow Jesus and believe the Bible either strongly agreed or somewhat agreed with the statement that Satan is not a living being but is a symbol of evil. The lies that we believe now are the same lies that they believed then. But here's the truth. Satan is real and Satan is powerful, strategic, and smart. Now, he is not as powerful as our God, and he is not equal with our God. But he is powerful, he is strategic, and he is smart. And so Peter starts verse 8 with a warning, and here are the two things he says. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. What does that mean? Well, when he speaks of the word sober, he's challenging us to be awake. The opposite of this word is the word drowsy. He's saying as you live your life, you need to be thinking clearly. You need to be awake. And then he moves to say be on the alert. Another way to say that would be be watchful. The opposite of the word alert is the word distracted. He's saying as you live your life, don't be drowsy and don't be distracted. Be awake and be watchful. Let me give you an example of this. Because a lot of you know I just returned from sabbatical. And a lot of that time we spent in Southern California. Because we really, really love the beach. And my two and a half year old daughter Scarlett. Really, really, really loves the beach. <laughs> from the moment that she woke up in the morning. I want to go to beach. That's what she would say. And so we spent a lot of time at the beach. And you can probably relate if you're a parent. But any time that. We were at the beach, whether I was up a little bit further on the sand or in the, wa- in the water with her. There was always an awareness in my mind of where she was. Because I know how small and weak she is, and I know how big and powerful the water is. So if I was with her, I was always close. If I was sitting up on the beach, I always had a line of sight, and my head was kind of on a swivel. Because I was constantly aware that a threat was present. Here's what Peter's saying. As you live life, you need to live your life awake and watchful that a threat is present. Because the enemy is real, he is powerful, he is smart, and he's strategic. So he starts verse 8 with this warning to say, hey... You need to listen to this. You need to wake up 
and you need to be watchful. Because I'm about to share some stuff with you that is very critical as it relates to your enemy. This morning, to unpack the rest of this text, I want to ask and answer two questions. Just like we did last week. So that by the time we end today, between last weekend and this weekend, there will be four key questions that we have asked and answered as it relates to spiritual warfare. So here's the first question for this morning. Who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? Peter takes verse 8 and he outlines for us some characteristics of our enemy. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to put all of them in totality up on the screen. And then I want to go back and unpack each one quickly this morning. So let's get that slide that really shows what Peter unpacks for us in verse 8. Here's what he says about our enemy. He says, he is 100% against you. He uses the phrase, your adversary. He is a liar. Peter refers to him as the devil. He pursues us. Verse 8 says, he prowls around like a roaring lion. The fourth and final characteristic in verse 8, he wants to destroy us. The verse ends by saying, seeking someone to devour. Now leave that up for just a second. I want to just celebrate for a moment and recognize the reason we come in here every single Sunday and make a really big deal about the freedom and life that is found in Jesus is because that's the enemy we've been set free from. The Bible says we are born under a sinful nature and we are a slave to sin and the enemy. But there was a day for me, like I hope there's been a day for you, when my eyes were opened, that Jesus had made a way where there was no way, and I did not have to spend this life or eternity as a slave to the enemy who is against me, who is a liar, who is a roaring lion, who wants to destroy me. I was set free by the power of God. But that's what Peter outlines for us in verse 8 about our enemy. Now, let's look at each one of those very quickly, individually. First of all, he says that the enemy is 100% against us. He uses a personal phrase. He says, your adversary. It's a word that means legal opponent. It's as if we are in the court of law, and it's the other party who is going up against you. The enemy is your opponent. He wants you to fail, and he wants to win. He's our legal opponent. I want you to hear me say this. The enemy does not love you, does not care about you, does not just want you to have a life that is fun without rules. He is against you and he hates you because he is your adversary. That's the first thing Peter comes out with right out of the gate when he talks about our enemy. He is 100% against us. The second characteristic he gives is that he's a liar. He refers to him as the devil. This is a word that means one who slanders or accuses. It's a word that's used 35 times in the New Testament to describe the enemy. This word takes 
the, the idea of opposition to a new level. He's not only the one who is our opposition. It means he is an evil enemy trying to trip you up. And one of the ways that he attempts to trip us up is by telling lies and making false accusations about God, about others, and about us. He'll lie to us and say things like, God cannot be trusted. It's a lie. He'll say things like, your plan is better than God's plan. It's a lie. He'll say, your sin only affects you. It's a lie. He'll say, God can never and will never use you. It's a lie from the enemy. He's a liar. The third characteristic we see here is that he pursues us. Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion. He compares the enemy's intentions to that of a lion on the prowl. I love the way John MacArthur spoke to this phrase. He said, the devil commands the demonic realm and administrates the human fallen world system. Personally and through his surrogates, the demons, who like him never sleep or rest, Satan untiringly, like a predator in the night of his own evil darkness, hunts to kill. And you can just imagine an enemy who has that intention, how much he loves the fact that so many people don't think he exists. The fourth characteristic in verse 8 is this. He wants to destroy us. Verse 8 ends with seeking someone to devour. Another place in scripture that speaks of this is in John chapter 10 verse 10. It says the thief or the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his mission. That's what he wants to do. So in just two verses of the Bible we see very clearly what the enemy's intentions are. 1 Peter 5 said he wants to devour. John chapter 10 says he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Now I want you to hear me say this this morning. That is his intention. But how he does that is very, very different if he's dealing with believers versus dealing with non-believers. Let me unpack that for you. When it comes to believers and what Satan is able to do, here's his desire for believers. The enemy seeks to destroy your testimony in this life. Wayne Gruden said, Demons will try to use temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, or any other means possible to hinder a Christian's witness And usefulness. That's what he wants to do. Now the reason that's all he can do. Is because we are secure in Christ. And our security in Jesus. Is greater, bigger, and stronger. Than anything the enemy could ever do to us. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 8. That nothing. Nothing 
will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So the enemy's only chance to come at believers is to somehow, some way, dilute your testimony and your usefulness here on earth. Because he cannot change your relationship with God. And he cannot change where you're going to spend eternity. But when it comes to unbelievers, it's a different conversation. You see, when it comes to those who don't follow Jesus, the enemy seeks to destroy your soul in this life and in the life to come. The enemy desires for those who are unbelievers to spend eternity in hell with him and his demons. I want you to hear this from the word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's what the Bible says. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing or unbelievers. In whose case the God of this world, meaning the enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You see that? That's what he wants. He wants you to believe that he doesn't exist. He wants you to believe that Jesus has not made a way where there is no way. He wants to destroy unbelievers' souls in this life and in the next. That's what the scripture teaches us here in verse 8 about our enemy. I hope that gives you some substance this morning when you think about who is our enemy. He is 100% against you. He hates you. He's a liar. He wants to trip you up. He pursues you like a prowling lion. And he wants to destroy you. That's what the scripture teaches about this enemy who is real, who is powerful, who is smart, and who is strategic. Well, if that's the case, what does he teach us in these next few verses about how we resist him? That's our second question this morning. Who is our enemy? How do we resist him? This word resist in verse 9 is a powerful word. It means to take a stand against. Resist means to take a stand against. It means active engagement against something. Peter says here, take an active engagement against the enemy. Stand firm against the enemy. And then he moves on in this text to really show us in a practical way what that looks like. So in our time remaining this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to share with you four realities to remember in the midst of the battle. As you live your life as a believer seeking to resist the enemy, to take a stance against the enemy... Here are four practical realities to remember in the midst of the battle. Here's the first one. Reality number one. You must depend on God in the battle. You must depend on God in the battle. He says resist him firm in the faith. The word firm means steadfast, solid, or fixed. 
It's the imagery of something that is structurally sound, that is immovable, that is set, that is fixed in its ways. Here's the opposite of the word. It's the idea of an object that is pushed and moved back and forth depending on its surroundings. It's the idea of a ship that is pushed to and fro based off the wind and the waves. The Bible said, don't be like that in the battle. You be someone who is fixed, who is steadfast, who is solid in the faith, in the truth, in the word of God that you know to be true. You must depend on God in the battle. Now, it's very powerful as you look at the end of our text last week in verse 7. And you look at how he opens up verse 9. He says in verse 7, cast your cares upon me. And then he goes to this verse 9 and he says, stand firm in the faith. There is a consistent emphasis to remind us that the battle should push us to God and not from God. I love what the New American Commentary said. The call to resist does not summon believers to do Herculean acts on God's behalf. Believers are not encouraged to gather all their resources to do great works for God. No, resisting the devil means that believers remain firm in their faith. This is in their trust in God. You see, it's very easy for us to hear a sermon like today and think, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to make a new commitment. I'm going to decide something different. And I'm going to charge on into the battle. I'm going to try harder. What the Bible's saying is that really resisting the enemy is not about trying harder. It's about trusting more. And there's a difference. If I'm going to resist the enemy in the battle, I must, by faith, see past my ability to God's ability. Several years ago, we really wrestled with this idea of faith and what it means to walk by faith. And we unpacked a working definition that I believe is very powerful and very applicable for us this morning. I want you to look at this statement about what it means to walk by To live by faith. Here's what it means. To live life. Not trusting in myself. But resting moment by moment. In his very life. In me. That's what it means to live by faith. Now take that reality over to the spiritual battle that we're in. We're not to be people who try to conjure up the best we can. And face the enemy. No, we are to depend on God. We're to press into Him and Him through us will give us the grace to resist the enemy in the midst of the battle. But a real practical question here is this. What are are the things that constantly allow me to deepen my faith and deepen my trust in God? If it's not about trying harder... It's about trusting more. That I need to spend my life pressing into him, deepening my faith and deepening my trust. Well, there's a couple of really easy answers to that. One is the word. 
what happens so many times is we find ourselves in the midst of some difficult circumstance or some difficult battle. And we've not been walking with Jesus before that. But in the midst of the moment, we think we can press a button and all of a sudden produce intimacy with God or dependence on Him. That's not a reality. We are to be walking in constant fellowship, in a deep relationship with God through the Word and through prayer. And so when the battle comes, we are already established in the faith, pressing into Him, walking by faith and trusting Him. And so in the battle, it's just natural that He presses His life out through us and we don't take all the pressure on our own shoulders. One, one way to deepen our trust and deepen our faith is the word. So let me ask you this question. Are you pursuing time in, under, and around the word alone and with others? You see, what can't happen is we can't allow the world to define truth for us and be pushed around by the waves of culture. We must have a clear understanding as we abide in the truth and in the word. Jerry Rankin said this. Satan's strategy is to erode confidence in God's word or cause us to neglect it in the battle. Why? Because he knows the word deepens our faith and deepens our trust in our God. Another very practical way to deepen our faith and deepen our trust is prayer. So let me ask you this this morning. Are you talking with God consistently Desperately and expectantly. Because in my life, in those moments when that has been the case, when I'm abiding in the word, when I'm in constant communication with God, when I'm depending on him firm in my faith, moments in the battle, don't, they fuel my faith, they don't shake my faith, because I know I have a God I can trust. The first reality that we need to remember in the midst of the battle is that you must depend on God in the battle. The second reality this morning is this. You are not alone in the battle. You are not alone in the battle. He continues in verse 9 and he says this. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren... Who are in the world. One of the, one of the many reasons that I love the way we celebrate God's global activity here at Hope. Is because it reminds me every single time. That the gospel is not an American gospel. It's not just meant for one race, for one tribe, one tongue, or one people group. It is a global gospel. And as Peter writes about suffering here, he brings up God's global activity to remind us that we are not in the battle alone. You see, when we lose sight of that, we start to think that we are all alone on an island and that nobody can relate with us. But that is completely unbiblical. The enemy wants you to think that if you are transparent or vulnerable with someone else, If you decide to pray with someone else, if you let someone else speak into your life, if you let someone else in, he wants you to think that you will be looked down upon for the rest of your life. 
But the Bible is letting us know here in the midst of a passage about the spiritual battle that we have a spiritual family and we are not alone. You see, in Christ, we are united as brothers and sisters and we're a family. And listen, today, whatever it is you're walking through, it's not unique to you. You're not the first and you're not the last. God has placed a family around you so that you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're not alone. And listen, today, if you're walking through something and nobody knows about it, there's never been a moment when you've been vulnerable with someone else. Listen, you are vulnerable in this battle. I had, a, had an example of that this week. Um, I was just sitting at home and I heard a knock at the door. And so I walked out and there was about 15 people standing on the sidewalk. And it was a small group from Hope. And it kind of took me back a little bit. <laughs> and, and the leader of that small group just said, hey, we, we were convicted a couple weeks ago when Vance was teaching about our pastors. And so we're just one by one going to all our pastors' homes and just praying. We're praying over them. We're praying over their families. We're praying for protection. We're praying for encouragement. I can't tell you how much that just blessed me this week. And here's what it reminded me. I'm not in this thing by myself. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who care about my family and me, who care about us, who are upholding us, who are praying for us. And listen, the same is true for you. You are not in this battle alone. That's so important. You have a family in Christ. The third reality that we see here in these verses is this. The battle is temporary. The battle is temporary. He says in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while. Now, even as I read that, I know there are days and it doesn't seem like a little while. There are days when moments feel like decades. But I want you to hear me say this this morning. The stresses and struggles of this world. Do not represent the last word in the life of a believer. They don't. As much as we may feel sometimes that the world is closing in and it's over, the stresses and struggles of this world, the stresses and struggles of the battle, do not have the final say-so when it comes to your life. Jesus does. I want you to hear this in the text, in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to these words. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says a little while. I don't know if the struggle you're in, the battle you're in is going to end today. But according to the, the Bible, it says it will end someday. And I want you to hear me say this morning that the battle's temporary. And we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Amen. 
The last thing, the last reality that he gives us here is this. God has an incredible plan for your life. He ends verse 10 by saying, the God of all grace. I love that. He doesn't just say the God of grace. He doesn't just say a gracious God. He is the God of all grace. Meaning, any need that arises in my life, he is sufficient to meet it. He's the God of all grace. Who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love that. There is, there is so much truth here and so little time for the sermon. So let me read for you a summary. Wayne Grudem wrote a lot on this. And I think his summary really does justice to the magnitude of what Peter is pouring out here at the end of verse 10. Here's what Wayne Grudem said. Indeed, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will restore them or make them fully prepared and complete with respect to any resource or ability which they have lost through this suffering. He will establish them Firmly in any position, rightful privilege, or responsibility which this suffering has taken from them. He will strengthen them for any weakness they have been made to suffer. Any inadequacy for overcoming evil which they may have known. He will settle them in any rightful place from which the suffering has wrongfully removed them in some all loss will soon be made right, and that for eternity. God has an incredible plan for your life. You say, what's his plan? I just read it. <laughs> that he will personally perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After it's all said and done, you can know that is God's plan for your life. As we live in this battle, I want you to hear me this morning. We must depend on God. We must depend on God. We must remember that we're not alone. We must remember that this thing is temporary. And we must remember that God has an incredible plan. For our lives. I want to close with a statement that was also by Wayne Grudem, but I feel there is, there is so much victory in this statement. He says this Christians must resist, expecting that the enemy will flee, God's kingdom will advance, that they will grow in faith and holiness through conflict. And God will take Satan's plans for evil and turn them to their good. Amen. Dallas Willard, who is um, a theologian that I really respect, he told of a story of a young child. And this young child woke up in the middle of the night. It was completely dark. And 
and he, he navigated his way to his parents' room. And he crawled up in his father's bed. But it was so dark in the room that he couldn't actually see his father. And so he couldn't go to sleep. And so he calls out to his dad. He says, Father, are you there? And his dad said, yeah, I'm here. He said, Dad, in this dark room, is your face turned towards me so you can see me rest? And his father said, yes, son. In the middle of this darkness, my face is turned towards you. Here's what I want you to know. In the midst of a war, in the midst of a spiritual battle that is serious, your heavenly father's face is turned toward you. Even in the midst of this darkness. I know it's tough. I know it's a daily struggle. But as believers, we do not fight for victory. We fight from it. 